I did want to mention that uh, if you do not have a copy of the Bible at home, then please take one of those black pew Bibles home with you. Uh, Our text this morning that we're looking at is Luke chapter 23. And you can find it in that Black Pew Bible on page 884. Uh, Each and every Lord's Day, every Sunday, uh, we gather here and we open up God's Word in hopes and a desire to uh, hear God, to speak to us through His Word, so we would welcome you uh, sincerely uh, any Sunday. We are people who take God's Word, the Bible, seriously, and hopefully we don't take ourselves too seriously, if you know what I mean. Uh, we, we have an approach to this. Uh, the way that we do this is uh, we study through books of the Bible. And uh, right now we are studying through the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, and typically we would just follow in sequential order. But it's Easter, so I skipped ahead. Uh, even though we're supposed to be in chapter uh, 21 or 22, we're going to briefly skip ahead to the account of resurrection as Luke uh, would, would record it in chapter 23. We're going to begin in verse 50. Just a reminder, at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, uh, he's already been teaching and he's been provoking and controversial and people have uh, loved him and people have hated him. And some in the, even in the course of a week have changed uh, one extreme or another. He's been arrested. He has been tried. Although he was innocent, he, Jesus, was willfully executed. The worst type of death possible, uh, an excruciating, a humiliating, a public death on a cross, a Roman cross. And even coming into this last day of the week, which for the Hebrew people was Sabbath, uh, that would have begun on a Good Friday, as we refer to it now, uh, at, at sun, uh, sundown. That's the beginning of the Jewish each week, is the, the Jewish uh, Sabbath, the last day of the week. It's the last time, though, it would be the last time that followers of God and of Jesus would would view it that way, that they would have just that day of the week. Now, for the rest of us, it's not the last day of the week. It is the first day of the week. It is Resurrection Day. It is the Lord's Day that we gather uh, to worship because of what happens right here in this chapter as recorded for us by Luke, who was a follower of Christ, who was a historian, who was also a physician. So he uh, has a particular interest. Let me invite you. I know you just sat, but we like to show deference to God's word by standing as we read it. Luke 23, beginning with, follow with me if you would, verse 50. Hear this. This is the word of God. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had been laid ever before. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone. It was rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of our Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. And they remembered. They were told these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. But let's ask God's help if you would join me. Father, please guide us to have a vision, a focus, a clarity. Would you uh, right now shine brighter than some of our, our sorrows, some of our temptations and fears, even our distractions? The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Would you please grant to us right now faith? I pray that you'd be in my speaking and that you would be uh, in our hearing. For Christ's sake, we ask. Amen. Some 20 plus years ago, it was my last year of college and I had an opportunity to travel overseas uh, to do foreign study. And we went to, through various places in Egypt and the Middle East uh, looking at, uh, at archaeology. Uh, and I remember a particular day in the city of Jerusalem because we made our way over to an area called, uh, it's referred to as the Garden Tomb. Now, certain people, different people have different views as to where that, uh, the tomb might be. Uh, I think in the end, we, we, we may not even know uh, the tomb of Jesus. And so uh, we were there in the garden and there are a lot of things that do line up, I must admit. I mean, it's location and some of the characteristics. And there's clearly a stone area that is carved out that looks exactly like a tomb. And it's even near uh, a, a rock formation that looks just like Golgotha, a skull where Christ would have been crucified. And I just distinctly remember we took the tour through the garden. There was uh, a man who I presume was retired. He was a, a lovely, delightful British man who got to the, the, he was pointing out different evidences and reasons why they believe this very garden may be the place. And he got to the end and he stood in front of, of the tomb and he said this. He said, you know, look, um, I, I, we, this is why we think, but ultimately we don't know. And to me, it doesn't, it doesn't concern me where the tomb is. Wherever it is, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced, I'm at peace that it is empty wherever that tomb is. And then he went on in a winsome, and he went on in a, in a very brief way to talk about how Jesus had dramatically changed his life with his grace and power. It warmed my heart to hear this man's story that day. Although I was sad later because I heard some of my classmates snickering and making fun and mocking the man as we departed the garden. Many doubted and denied the resurrection then and now to this very day. They claimed that the disciples fabricated a story to bolster the, the validity of their dead savior and guide. My guess is that maybe you're here today and uh, you are a follower of Christ. Maybe you're not, maybe you are. But I'm guessing that many of you are not followers of Christ because you carefully studied all of the, theolo- all of the archaeological evidences or all of the, the things that would empirically point you to proof of Christ's resurrection. My, my guess is that you are actually a follower of Christ because you've encountered a living man. 
You've encountered a Christ that you have embraced by faith because of what Jesus has done. He has brought something into your life that philosophies and relationships and hobbies and religions and recreations and substances and toys and the list goes on cannot do and has not done. Namely, bring meaning and joy and significance and purpose, a new heart, a new identity, a new hope, forgiveness, love, love, grace that covers your guilt and your shame. Just three questions. You see them listed there in the order of service to help kind of guide our study here. The, the three questions are this. Who is returning for Jesus? Why is it recorded this way by Luke? And then lastly, what are the responses? Now, for this first question, who's returning for Jesus? Just to remember that the, the, at this particular time of Judea, the, the, Israeli, the, the Israeli people are occupied by Rome, right? And then the, the emperor... Uh, Tiberius has appointed that they would have in that province of Judea a governor. That governor has historically been known. I mean, it's a fact. It was Pontius Pilate. The Jewish council, though, has these charges against Jesus. Charges of things like blasphemy because he's claimed to be God. And and disrupting the peace and causing unrest because he has claimed to be the king of the Jews. And they think that's ridiculous. We read of that in previous chapters, and you can read it for yourself, building up to this in previous chapters of Luke. The Romans, though, even though the Jews and the the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders would have charged Jesus, no one can execute this and no one can try and, uh, and punish a criminal unless it's, of course, the Roman government. And so they bring him to execute this sentence. And in the, in the midst of that, Jesus, to remind you, it's well known that Jesus was mocked. He was beaten. He was accused. He was tried. Many of his, his disciples in the process of that actually scattered. They didn't hang with him. They were fearful, including, we know, remember the, the, the rooster crowing? It's, it's, it's now we know him as St. Peter. Peter was there. That's a bookmark, okay? So just remember Peter, all right? We'll come back to Peter. There's a tremendous amount of love. Who has come back for Jesus? Peter's not there. But who has come for Jesus? Who came and and witnessed his crucifixion and now are taking his body and caring for him and and showing compassion and attention to him? Well, it's Joseph, this man, this Jewish leader. Verse 50 records that he was a member, you, you see there, he was a member of the Jewish leadership council. He was, more importantly, a dissenting member of that council. He doesn't agree with their conclusion. He doesn't think this is the right thing. He's persuaded more of who Jesus is. We don't know where he is on that journey. We just know that it's recorded that he was uh, one who was, verse 51, looking for the kingdom of God. What else do we know about Joseph? Joseph would, would have been a wealthy man. He owns his own you know, to, tomb cover, you know, cut out of rock. He must have been a man of influence because I mean, he has access to the governor, Pontius Pilate. He just goes in in verse 52 and asks Pilate, can I, I mean, no one just walks right into his presence, but obviously Joseph had that type of clout. Likely a disciple, likely one who surrendered his life to Jesus and he's sticking his neck out on the line. He is, he is jeopardizing his own reputation, doesn't seem to care about that or the tomb and what he's giving away. Then in verse 55, it reminds us that some of the the, the most devout, the, the ones who were attentive, uh, were these women. 
So look, look with me, if you will, at the end of chapter 23, verse 55. The women who came with him, with Joseph and the body, from Galilee. Okay, let me just put a little, let me, little note there. Translated, these are country bumpkins. Okay, they're in the city of Jerusalem, the capital, but they are from the, the outer regions, you know, the, the Galilean, you know, country folk that are here in the city for Passover week. This is, this is a group of women who knew and loved Jesus very, uh, very much. They want to give him a proper burial. Oh, and by the way, who's missing? Well, I already mentioned Peter, but there's no one else. His disciples, like I said, even the closest ones, James and John, they're, they're not to be seen. But what is present in this moment, those who came, those who returned, are caring. They're warm. They have love. They have devotion. They have compassion. What is missing, though? What is missing is a lack of faith that is fueled by some of their forgetfulness, which Luke records in Chapter 24, verse 4 there, or, or excuse me, uh, if you look there, the, the dazzling chapter 24, verse 4 and 5, these dazzling figures dressed, we presume they're these angelic beings that appear as men. And then what do they do? They rebuke them with this reminder in verse 6. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man, and they go on to quote the scripture that Jesus had said to them. Luke had recorded it two other times. Right there. It's very clear. Let's move on. Why is it recorded this way? I don't know if it occurred to you, um, but I think it's an important question to ask that we should ask ourselves when we come to the text. When we see at various places in the text of God's word, why did the writer record it this way? Inspired of God, why did they record it this way? Why are these details included? Why are certain details left out? It is of great importance. Here are two that I would just briefly offer up. Two questions on why they record it this way. Why did they record the fear and the forgetfulness and the doubt and the confusion of the disciples? I mean, with the exception of these women, with the exception of of Joseph, so many, like I said, are fearful. They have scattered they, they, don't want to be, uh, they, don't, they don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to be associated at this point with Jesus. They're confused. They're, they're not at the tomb waiting. They weren't at the cross. But these women are. They come to the tomb. They're waiting. They're, well, they actually, they were there anticipating seeing a body. That's why they brought the spices. That's why they came back that Sunday morning. <laughs> but they weren't looking at the promises or the prediction. The resurrection is more on the mind of the enemies than it is on the disciples. What do you know? It's the people who wanted. It was the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders who said, hey, Pontius Pilate, please put a seal and a guard, a whole group of people to make sure that no one would steal this body so that they could fabricate a story that their savior is alive. So it's actually the, the enemies, not the followers of Jesus, who are more concerned about or more attentive to this. Why record the fears and doubts of the disciples? It's not very flattering. It's not very reassuring. It's not very confirming or triumphant. The second question is, why does Luke record and highlight that it was a group of women? The very first, all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
All of them include that it was the first witnesses being women who came to the tomb and witnessed the resurrection. To many in that day, in particular, that would have that would have diminished significantly, if not jeopardized all of the cases for credibility at that particular time, whether it was Jewish or, or Greek or Roman culture, women had a significantly lower status, unfortunately. In fact, women could not own land. Perhaps even worse is the fact that women were not allowed to give a, a testimony that it was admissible in a case of court law. So it's interesting that all four gospel accounts, as I said, include that women were the ones who were those first witnesses. Could have just left that detail out. Said that he was seen by others. Why? Why include these embarrassing angles and details? Well, the simple explanation is this. That's what happened. You don't have anything to hide if you're speaking the truth, right? You don't have to remember the details another way if you're just speaking the truth. The gospel writers, as some scholars and skeptics suggest, were fabricating a story to validate their belief in their cause. Wouldn't they have put it in a slightly better light? More compelling? The disciples weren't scheming and waiting to take Jesus' body. They were more afraid of their own bodies being hurt or caused harm because of their association with Jesus. Of course, Jesus did not only testify to these women... He also goes on, as we see recorded, he appeared bodily. People touched him, ate ate meals with him. 500 plus witnesses are recorded. Jesus comes rolling in. Fear indeed dissipated and worship began to rise up. The faith and the power and the boldness of the disciples, even in that city of Jerusalem, seven days later, as much as they were ashamed at one point, seven days later, they're preaching in that very city, a city where people would have said, no, I know exactly where he was buried. There was a big hubbub about it. We can go and look for ourselves. It's not, he is there. No, he's not there. That's the point. Some of the greatest evidence of what Luke, uh, you know, records here. And, of course, the, the, the lives changed. And this great cause of Christianity, which exploded, even for people like the Apostle Paul. Easter, what I'm trying to say, is not mythology. Many of you, many of you know this personally. And we'll come to this in a moment. But the logical answer is the reason of this truth is that history is not mythology. It's what unfolds. The disciples of the gospel writers mentioned by name, it would have been to their demise. It's not safe to identify with Jesus. There was ridicule. There was imprisonment. There was even threat of death. Joseph and, Joseph and these women led the way that day. But in the end, the risks were, were with you know, living that out in the context of even Jerusalem. One writer, John Blanchard, captures it well. The disciples might risk their lives for something they imagined, but not hardly for something they invented. Yes, for some convictions, but not concoctions. John Stott, a British writer, says, hypocrites and martyrs are not made of the same stuff. So that people will die for a, a lie, but not things they know are a lie. We all know that some conspiracies have some validity, but over time, the truth wins the day. Just ask certain people who've tried many times over to hide things. What was it for 
the disciples. Hundreds of years of ridicule. Imagine Peter being crucified upside down. All he had to say was, okay, fine. It was a hoax, okay? We wanted to help other people. We tried to help ourselves. But for hundreds of years, in fact, in the space of 300 years, Christianity would blanket the entire world, the the entire known world. Because of the resurrection, because of the power of God's spirit. Do you believe that? How relevant is it to your life? Your your personal life, tomorrow is Monday, you know that, I know that. How relevant is it to your life? Well, maybe an analogy that would help. Imagine yourself at the end of the late 1800s and someone explained to you that one day in the not too distant future, humanity would fly in something called a plane. By AI. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. So just imagine if you're, you're, you're a student and you're fascinated with physics and you, you, know, you, you, you just can't, you, you dream of you know, someday being like a bird and then you hear, someone's going to invent something called a plane. In fact, actually, someone is actually going to invent an aircraft that will not only fly in the sky, but orbit the earth and make its way all the way out to the moon and someone will land on that moon and they will walk out on that moon. You'd say, well, I, I'm going to need some proof. that. I mean, that's hard to believe. I, I'm going to need some proof for that. Uh, I remember as a kid, my dad told me one time that people actually believed that that was a, that was a hoax. My dad told me, I remember as a young boy, that he said, well, back in the 60s when this occurred, there were people that thought that even that whole scene where they stepped out onto the moon was all, all drawn up and fabricated in a Hollywood studio. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Some people can't be persuaded. Other people don't want to be persuaded. It doesn't matter about the moon so much. I mean, I think it matters, though, that the God-man, Jesus, wherever he is, is alive. And all of Christianity hinges on this. And 1 Corinthians 15 The Apostle Paul says if it didn't happen, and it either did or it didn't, it's not a figurative thing. This is either history or mythology. But if it did, it's a game changer. If it's not, we are the most of all to be pitied. Last question. What are the responses? Let's look at verse 11. But those words, remember, remember, this is is not good light on the disciples this is not good for the, for the apostles and their cause that Luke records it this way. But when the women came and testified, verse 11, but these words seemed idle, an idle tale to them and they did not believe them. But, but Peter, Peter is the one who jumped to his feet and began to run and wanted to look into that. What does it say he does? He marvels. He is blown away. He is in awe. The response of Peter is faith. And then the fruit of that comes forth in Peter's life with great boldness and hope. What does the resurrection of Jesus, amongst other things, proclaim? What does it say? Well, it's like I mentioned, it's a cosmic game changer. It says something about the demise of evil, the power of God. It says something about physical life. The importance of our physical bodies. 
That God cares about that. It says something. It proclaims something about hope and about fear. It proclaims something about the past and the present and the future. What, what ending, what, what, what narrative, what movie, what book has the ending of which altered your entire life? Transformed your very existence. Well, for me, I, I, mean, I read this and I say, the cross, the Lord on the cross, Jesus said his last words, it is finished. And then God the Father says, amen. And the way that he does that with the vindication of his power is to raise him from the dead. Christ is the victor. That has not only implications for the glory of the Son of God, but all of those, all of you and me, sons and daughters of God. What does it say? What does it change? I'll tell you just two. I could name many more. One is sin. There's this thing called atonement. What is atonement? A modern world, a modern word in our justice system is retribution. We send people to prison to suffer. Friends, Jesus took our prison in his human frailties. He endured ridicule. He was betrayed and he paid our debt through a shameful death that not he, but we deserved. How do we know when a criminal has paid their debt? But when they typically it's the day they get out of prison. I mean, not not like over or under a fence out of prison. You know what I mean? But they, they're released. They, they, they've served their time. They've served their sentence. They are, they are free. This is precisely why we are gathered on the first day of the week to celebrate that Jesus, by the power of God the Father, has been raised from the... And that says free. Freedom. Forgiveness. The resurrection is not mythology. Quite frankly, the problem is not with the evidence. The problem is with us. So often it's our own sinful flesh, our own desire for autonomy and our hatred of accountability. We want to serve ourselves, not a living savior. That's the nature of sin. It's very deceptive too. And, it, and the longer that we live and walk in it, it just serves to our bondage and not freedom. It's still, and even for those of you who have experienced the freedom and the forgiveness of Jesus, it still is part of our story, our struggle, our life. There's so many areas where sin and its influences are in our, our, our faculties and in our motivations. It doesn't own us, nor does it condemn us, but it's there. And he has victory over sin. The second thing is, and I'm, 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 I'm venturing to guess that everyone in this room will identify in some way, with this struggle. Resurrection proclaims the death of death. A friend of mine, uh, Brian, who's a psychologist, he's also a pastor in the city, Brian Loney, he was highlighting for me one day how most all fears can be distilled down into a fear of insignificance and a fear of death. I don't know what he means by that first one, but I kind of get the other one, right? Because, you know, there's a reason you're afraid of snakes and spiders and the dark and heights and that because you're afraid of. Boy, I was hoping you guys were awake. Um... 
Death, thank you. Someone said it. Yes, that's right. We, we, we do have this, this fear of death. We get it. It's the common enemy. I feel like I've had too many reminders of that this past week. How about you? I was reminded of this yesterday when I, I felt some, some sorrow uh, because we, we lost a, a dear family friend that was down in North Carolina. We couldn't be there for the, the funeral. It was in the same church where another friend of mine in his 40s had his funeral three years ago, and I missed that too. But this man who died... This past week, his name is Nat and his wife, Mindy Bells. Mindy is a gifted writer. She's a journalist. She recorded this and wrote it to friends. My keeper, referring to her husband, Nat. My keeper of the flame, the guardian of the castle, husband and truest friend has exchanged mortality for immortality. Nat Bells died peacefully in our home Thursday evening, surrounded by family, friends and neighbors. He had no let up in pain and suffering since bladder cancer was diagnosed five months ago. And our anguish in losing him comes packed, comes packed with thanksgiving that his suffering has ended and his joy has now begun. We read aloud this past month from N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope, about faith that comes not as a religious experience, but faith because of something that happened to the crucified Jesus Christ's resurrection and his physical reappearing on earth, a reality we celebrate this coming Holy Week. That is our hope. She writes, Nat, my husband said, it is there. That hope is there for a dying cancer patient and for an Olympic athlete. And I can feel vigorously alive in my dying. If you're in Christ, death is not the final word. Death is not the final word. George Herbert, the 17th century poet and pastor said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel just made him a gardener. Another way of putting it is death used to be an executioner, but the resurrection of Jesus makes it nothing, makes him nothing but a gardener. When he tries to bury you death, he's really planting you and you're going to come up better than before. Our resurrection. We all said it. Most of you I heard say it in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. You believe in the, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. You said that. We're not referring to Jesus primarily, but to our resurrection. Do you believe that? Do you believe that resurrection is a fact? Well, great. A lot of people find it persuasive. Faith has its reasons and its evidences. But more importantly, my question is this, and I, my, your two favorite words in a, in, a, in a sermon. In conclusion, <laughs> my last question is this. Do you know him? Do you know him who said, and no one else has said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live.
My prayer is that you too can believe this. You can believe him personally, (coughs) daily. Father, please, would you write your words on our hearts and minds right now that you guide us into a deeper understanding of who our resurrected king is and that our hearts would be filled with a deeper affection and our lives would be changed to reflect his glory and his worth. I pray that for for every soul here this morning. Lord, would you please forgive us our unbelief? Would you grow us, Lord, in faith and hope and love? Please, Father, be with those who experience great fear, especially this season for those who grieve and mourn because of loss, loss because of violence and disease and storms, even this past week. We know that someday, we long for that day, you'll redeem all of this. I pray for Marina and her mother and her family and the painful loss of her precious uncle this past week. I thank you that Eber was united to Christ and his resurrection. Would you bless them and their church as they grieve this very day and their family? Draw near to them. Bring to them. Bring to others in our country and other parts of the world that's war-torn and discouraged. You bring them hope that comes because of resurrection. We pray all of this with hope because of Jesus and his name. And as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.